Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack, pre-A, VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership with an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hi, everyone. Hi, Gil. Hi, Oren. Thank you both so much for joining us. Oren, we're, we're so happy to have you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. The session has been a long time coming. We've been wanting to have Oren on the show for, I think, over a year now. So we're really excited to have him. This is our first Insights in a few months. So thank you all so much for joining us. And we have a great conversation. We'll be talking with Oren about the importance of values and culture as you scale a business, something that's super important and also especially relevant today, given everything that is going on. Gil, do you want to quickly introduce Oren? I would love to. It's a pleasure to have you. You hear, Oren, thank you so much for doing this. I know you're super busy. You're one of a, a small select group of guests we've had that I had the honor of not being able to invest in their seed round, even though I met you. But we'll talk more about that in a second. Just to introduce Oren, Oren founded AppsFlyer a decade ago to solve one of the major problems in the mobile apps market, the problem of mobile analytics and user attribution when apps come through the app store. It can be difficult for companies to figure out where users are coming from and how they got there. Before founding AppsFlyer, Oren was actually a VC and held engineering positions at a bunch of different companies, including Intel. AppsFlyer was founded by Oren and CTO Reshef Mann in 2011. It's grown super rapidly and now has 1,400 employees in 20 offices around the world. They have 10,000 different partners and provide measurements and analysis for more than 80,000 applications from startups to blue chip brands like Walmart, Nike, Coca-Cola, eBay, and Visa. Most recently, that's public. In January 2020, you guys did a $210 million Series D round led by General Atlantic at a company value that was announced at $2, two billion. So hopefully you're well-financed going into the downturn that we're experiencing now. And again, Oren, thank you so much for making the time to do this. I'd love to start by asking just a bit about your career pre-apps flyer. You did all kinds of things. You even worked in a VC and then you ended up starting this company, which has done extraordinarily well. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to that decision to get started and what your pre-apps flyer learnings were that helped you with apps flyer? Yeah, definitely. Gil, first of all, thank you for inviting me for this session. Just to refer to one of the things you said, well, finance to this downturn. First of all, I think that this is really important. I think that the most important thing is to have great business and great customers and relationship with the customers and adding significant value to the ecosystem and customers and always do the right thing for the customers in the ecosystem and consumers in the end of the day. I think that the most important than investors, and we're probably going to talk about investors, are your customers, the ones that are actually paying the bills and allowing you to continue to grow You continue to innovate on their behalf. So yes, we're getting into this downturn in a very, very good position in terms of our book of business, customers, relationship with more than 10,000 different customers. The revenue, uh, the recurring revenue is actually confidential, but I can tell you that we are crossing $300 million in recurring revenue this year. Actually, we crossed $300 million in recurring revenue. The revenue is the software as a service, a high margin. So we're not in media business or selling ads or data or building profiles or selling trading licensing data. So 100% of our revenue is coming from app developers paying subscription and per use for our software and technology, basically. So I think that this is the most, most important thing. And I think that for great companies, the market is always right. So 
We're not trying to time the market when it's up or down. We're not trying to time anything. We're just trying to do the best thing for our customers. This is how we started. And this is what, how we operated in the last 10 years, specifically now. So we, we can get more into it. But maybe I'm just going to now rewind 10, 11, maybe even more years ago. Back to your question. Back in 2010, I was using BlackBerry. I was sure that BlackBerry is the thing. I was sure that Apple didn't have a chance to actually win this market, an amazing device. It was impossible to buy an iPhone in Israel back then, believe it or not. I had the opportunity to go to uh, Wharton as an exchange student. Over there, I bought a used iPhone on Craigslist. I remember the first 24 hours with the device. I was sure that this device is going to change everything in our lives, including every aspect of it. I was so excited that I really wanted to take a part in this crazy and amazing revolution that is about to come. And it also reminded me Gold Rush and Gold Rush for mobile. The app developers needed software and software tools allow, to allow them to do a great job and to be successful in this emerging market. And this is what ignited this interest. And then I had the opportunity to have a small internship in a VC in Philadelphia in the city. Over there, I found that, yes, mobile is growing like crazy and is going to grow in the next 10 years. I found that there is no measurement. And my background is more engineering, logical mindset. It just didn't make sense to me how companies making significant decisions in terms of effort and budgets without really having the numbers or the justification or the measurement into the equation. And also found massive conflict of interest and wild west of companies without clear interests. So a lot of conflict of interest, companies been serving buyers and sellers. It's like having a referee that is part of one of the teams. A referee must be unbiased, must be independent and cannot belong to one of the teams. <laughs> and this is what basically was in the market. And it is still today to some extent in the market. I thought that doesn't make sense. And this is what took me back basically to Israel. So once we had, maybe I'm just gonna take a year in, we started to work with very small developers, friends and family, and developing the software to allow them to measure and make decisions. And we've been working very closely with customers. Now we, you talked about fundraising. We had very hard time raising money. You're, 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 you're taking all our questions away. So there was uh, a question we want to ask you maybe to put the fundraiser in the context. Tell us what does AppsFlyer do today? And then maybe you can then talk about, okay, what did you tell VCs AppsFlyer was doing then? It's almost the same. It was complicated 10 years ago, and now it's even more complicated. Today, we help app developers, consumer businesses uh, to measure and to collaborate with the entire ecosystem. So... Any consumer business, when they go to market and they want to acquire new users and they want to engage with their existing users, they need to measure it in order to make decisions. They need to interact with different companies, whether it's their Facebooks, Googles, Apple search ads of the world. They need to collaborate with them. They need to measure the impact of their investment. They need to measure lifetime value. They need to measure return on investment. And they also need to preserve users' privacy. So with you leveraging our technology, we allow companies or two companies to work together, to collaborate together, that also allow them to make good decisions for the consumers, but also to preserve their privacy. And this is kind of an additional, I would say, big challenge for the entire ecosystem to kind of uh, overcome. The entire ecosystem, browser-based internet or applications were based on cookies, which is user-level data. So it actually forced the companies to work together and to collaborate based on user-level data, which actually created privacy concerns 
And this is something that we've been working on the last couple of years to enhance the way companies work together so they can still make good decisions for their customers, but also to preserve their privacy. So collaboration, and on top of it, you have analytics, you have engagement products such as degree keying and smart partners, you have fault protection. The way we think about what we build and what we don't build is basically very simple. It may be harder to answer, but easy to think about. We always ask ourselves, what are we uniquely positioned to build? Not because we have great engineers, just because of our positioning. And everything else needs to develop by the ecosystem. So we have 10,000 different partners, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles of the world. And that's on the media side, TikTok, uh, Snapchat, Pinterest, you name it. Apple, search ads, and all the uh, marketing clouds such as Adobe, Oracle, uh, Salesforce, etc. Analytics, marketing, automation, campaign management. So basically any company that can add value on top of it, we have APIs that you can actually, as a customer, as an application developer, you can go ahead and activate out of the box from within our platform. So again, if this is something that the market can develop, the market should develop. And if this is something that we are uniquely positioned to build, this is, these are the things that we need to build. And this is how we expanded the offering, but also being very strict about what we do and what we don't do. The focus of our conversation is going to be about managing people and building company values. But because so many of the people who are in the room and listen to this are early stage founders in the beginning of their journeys, can you talk a little bit about the early fundraising for AppsFlyer? I remember meeting you. I remember being super impressed. And I remember having two impressions that you kind of rarely have as a VC at the same time. On the one hand, it felt like, wow, this market's kind of crowded. Like I know it's early in mobile, but there was still App Annie, there were other things or other tools out there that people were using, right? It, it felt a bit crowded. And the other thing that I, I, I remember thinking was that the way you were describing what specifically AppSlayer was able to do sounded a bit magical. It was like, wow, that shouldn't be possible. Can you go into a little bit more detail on what that was like? And what was it that you were telling people that was so unique and powerful? And what kind of reactions were you getting? And how did you overcome them? I, I mean, now it's obvious, you know, $300 million of revenue, but take us back to those early days when you weren't sure this was going to work. Now I'm thinking about it in uh, perspective. In uh, Zazen, actually, I just read that on the weekend. They say that in the beginner's mind, the unlimited amount of uh, possibilities and the expert mind, the only few. And this is also, it relates to curse of knowledge. I think that because we didn't come from the industry and we had a very fresh look at how this entire industry operates. It didn't make sense to us. I just gave you the example of a wide breadth of companies and a lot of conflicting interests. It really didn't make sense to me at the beginning. And then I saw that there are a lot of temptations in doing different things. For example, starting to sell media. So instead of selling for one cent, you can sell for $1 or $2. It can be a big temptation for people and for companies to go after short-term profit and short-term revenue, maybe on the expense of the long-term vision, or maybe not, and maybe they don't have such a vision. But for us, we thought that we can really build something that is meaningful just by focusing on what we believe and really taking long-term into account, not just saying long-term, we define long-term for us that is at least five to 10 or even 20 
years from today. So every decision that we make, we want to measure in, in five to 10 to 20 years time frame. And I think that this is what allowed us, again, beginner's mindset, a fresh point of view on the market, being very strict about what we do and what we don't do. For example, if we want to be the referee, be the referee. So it means that you need to be independent. You need to be unbiased and not getting into other stuff. I can tell you that up until today, we're getting emails with offers to exchange media and collaborate on media and all these kind of things. I would call them bullshit. For other companies, maybe it's good business for them. Maybe we are wrong, but we are very strict about what we do and what we don't do, what we're never going to do. And this is kind of a commitment from us to the entire ecosystem and our customers and our partners. And I think that this is what kind of created the trust in the ecosystem. Now, I think that the question was about fundraising and I'm sorry for going all this trip around. We're trying to capture like 10 years and a couple of minutes. This is really hard for me. Let me help you a little bit, make it a little tighter. What was the most difficult part early on about trying to communicate your vision to people? What did they not believe? Look, we didn't have a vision at the beginning. A vision, now we need to define the vision. I think that it also took us time to really understand our mission in life and what we want to do and our responsibility to the ecosystem and what we're actually building here. So it took us a while to really get into what is our vision um, in this market. And today is really to have a better and safer digital experience. This is a vision that we couldn't even dream about back in the days. Back in the days, we saw a problem that app developers needed technology and we just wanted to build technology to allow them to do great jobs. So I cannot call it a vision. I think that what we've done is something that is new, something that was really innovative. So companies and investors have been thinking, okay, what's the target market? It's zero because there is nothing. And I'm like, when you're creating a new vertical, by definition, it's zero. So we're not getting in after a CRM, which is billions of dollars. We're going to take 10% of the market. And here you go, you have billions of dollars. So that wasn't the pitch. The pitch was something that is going to be created. Uh, just to remind you, in 2011 and 2012 and 13 and 14, people still thought that applications are not going to be something. VCs didn't want to invest in applications. You remember that. There was a debate. No, it's going to be web and it's going to be HTML5 and it's going to be this and that. So it wasn't really clear. And if it's not really clear, maybe companies wouldn't need any measurement. And I think that this significant change that happened from web-based experience into app store experience really changed in a fundamental way, everything. So you're talking about deprecation of cookies now for years. And it takes time for the entire market to adapt, to build, and all that stuff. In application, you didn't have cookies from the get-go. So everything that's been working for the web didn't work in applications. I went to a Google Analytics meetup. In the meetup, they talked about Google Analytics for mobile applications. And I wanted to ask, okay, how do you know where the users are coming from? Because it wasn't there. And I asked myself, should I ask it or not? This is Google. They can build it tomorrow. And then I said, okay, what the heck? I'm going to ask. And I asked the presenter, right? Uh -huh, where the users are coming from? He didn't know. And, and I said, hey, this is what we're building in the company to allow you to know where the users are coming from so you can 
make decisions. That makes sense to you. The reason that I'm saying it, it was new. Even to Google, it was new. Yeah, and I think that's one. Second thing is that for the web, there were a lot of workarounds, and I think that something like the App Store had to happen in order to really completely change for something that is doable as a workaround into something that could not be achieved that way. And then companies are kind of forced to do something else. Also, the notion of measurement wasn't really there that you can actually measure return on investment and lifetime value. So companies been really thinking that they're measuring, but they didn't really measure. So I think that the beginning of the first couple of years for us was really market education. It still is market education, but really basic education back then. So even if we have a couple of competitors, I think that we've done a good job, us and our competitors, to really educate the market about the need and why they should be using something like that. Other than that, why we had the challenging time to raise, I don't know, but I think that for one end, it was really frustrating. But on the other end, I think that it really built something that was not achievable without this kind of hardship and challenge. I think that we changed our perspective and on how and what is uh, investors and their function. We thought that if we can build something of value to the ecosystem and app developers, so maybe we should go and raise money. But if we cannot prove to ourselves that investors that we're bringing in, we cannot make them significant amount of money, and that could be a potentially good investment for them, why should we take money? So we decided after the frustration that people told us no, and we can really raise money. So we said to ourselves, we think that we can actually build something and to demonstrate that there is value. And we figured out that the potential investors will pick up the phone and call our customers anyways. So let's make sure that we built great technology and great experience. So when the investors call them, they will say, okay, this is great service. We need it. And we're going to use it next year and the next couple of years. So we've been focusing on customers. And I think that this is also something that allowed us to be the customer obsessed that we are because we didn't come from the ecosystem. So we didn't come with knowledge about internet or advertising or marketing, both me and Reshap, my co-founder, we learned everything that we know from customers in the ecosystem. So we've been very close to them. So we really saw ourselves as part of our customers. So we really put ourselves in their shoes and developed a relationship and asked them, okay, how do your day look like? How does the week look like? How do you make decisions? What's it, what you're trying to do this year, next year? What the other tools are you using? And then we really thought about what can we do to make their lives better and focus on what we are uniquely positioned to build. Because back then we had very limit, limited engineering function. And also now we have 500 people in building products, but still it's limited. I want to come back to this like customer obsession point in just a second. But before that, I want to just to kind of set the foundation of the talk, since it's all about the importance of culture and values. Could you just quickly talk about what are the core culture and values you have instilled at AppSwires, and then we'll come back to this customer obsession piece. When you ask me what is the culture, this is a very easy question, very hard to answer why. 
I'll ask you what is the culture of this nation or the ideal nation or whatever. This is you're gonna get a very long answers and maybe even diversified opinions. And that's great. And we think that companies' culture is the same, and it's also an evolution. Really at the beginning, we thought that culture is one of the most important things for any company. And company culture is something that we can innovate on. And company culture is something of irreversible process. So this is how we looked at building culture. Some companies bring an agency and they put like signs and they built like 10 values or whatever, and they put signs on the walls. We haven't done it. We've created tools and beliefs about all the learnings that we had. And now we have 16 beliefs. Maybe this is more of a learnings. On the value side, we actually adapted only two that are easy to remember. Customer first and do only things that make you proud to be a part of the company. So basically, this is a decision-making framework. So before any decision that you make, you need to ask ourselves two questions. Is it good for our customers? Does it make you more proud to be part of this company? If you get two yes, that's probably a valid decision to make. And if not, that's, you need to go to the next one. We don't tell the team how to think. We expect them to follow these two things. That's it. And then you kind of creating diversity and diversification of opinions and ways to solve different problems and bring different perspectives into solving problems. We love it. We have 20 offices around the world. We have many cultures and backgrounds and experiences in the company. We really want them to come together that they can feel safe and feel safe to share their opinions and having like one common goal and let's make the right things for our customers and let's make sure that we all proud in this creation. I think you're answering the question in a way that sort of says, look, if I, if I were to read out to you the values or list the values, it would sound trite because all companies would come up with the same values. But I, I do think it's sort of unique. There does seem to be a, a real emphasis on this at AppsFlyer compared yeah. to other companies, right? Yeah. That's clear. And when you look at AppsFlyer, right, just to give some examples, you know, COVID-19 response, which was extraordinary. The Ukraine response was extraordinary. You've done some really interesting stuff on the Holocaust and Pride Month and all of these activities you guys are super vocal about. What I want to try to draw out in this conversation is that your app store is unique in the amount of investment you guys are making in this and the fact that you put it front and center. And if we can't talk about what the culture is, because it would sound like everyone else, why is it so important to AppStar? Why was it so important to you? I think you even talk about, I think it's like 1% of the profits every year are donated to charity. Like that, that's not normal for a startup. Revenue. Revenue, which is even more than, right? So, so let's just start with why was this so important to you? So there are many things. One, I believe that culture is a competitive advantage. And if we agree that the culture creation is an irreversible process, Every single company that you see on the planet are kind of old school. Again, if you agree to what I just said, because they were created, all the other companies and also us, we were created back in 2011 or 12. So you can think that the creation of the culture actually started 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, this is how the world looked like. And if you think about companies like Google, you have 20 something years. So by definition, again, if you agree to my assumption that culture creation is, is irreversible, 
there is room for innovation for new companies and to create this kind of advantage. So this is how we looked at things and we wanted to really build something that is unique, not for the uniqueness, but for being competitive. We want to win the market. It's about recruiting. Was it about customers? Was it like what? Everything. Every single thing. And I think that great culture, it's something that allows you to innovate, to provide good, great customer experience and partner experience, is allowing you to hire great talent, is allowing you to have engaged and involved employees that are only in that, really thinking like a founder, that making the right things for the customer, that having internal debates, what is the right thing for the customer, not for the individual, not for the specific team, not for a specific department. What is the right thing for the ecosystem? What is the right thing for the consumer on the end of the day? So to have and encourage these kind of conversations, this is something that you have to have an amazing environment for. The environment, people are products of the environment and their experience. If you agree to that, it means that if you create great environment, the result is that you have great people around you. I will give you an example that I really love. A couple of years ago, someone started the company. We were much smaller. The developer, he came after out of university, two years experience. It wasn't a good experience. So in the first couple of days, we saw that this is not a good fit for the Kfar culture. The manager actually had a conversation with him. We thought that this is the end, right? And after a couple of days, it was enough for us to see that this is a big gap. And we had to talk with him and we told him, look, maybe the company that you're coming from is more political and all that stuff. But here it's not the way we operate. And we don't believe that this is the right thing. And we don't believe that this is the right thing for you. And I can tell you that this conversation actually changed the way he looks at the world. It changed the way and how he looks at the work environment. Again, it was fresh out of university. They don't know much. This individual had only two years of experience coming from a very political company. So he thought maybe that this is how companies operate. So he became like this. And when he experienced different culture that we're building here, something together that encourages being involved and not encourage this ego and individualism and politics and stuff like that, and you put that out of the door, you create an environment that is better, safer, more innovative. You allow yourself to create, to be more creative. Just so that you can continue the story. It ended up that he was very successful in the company. We promoted him to be a manager. He spent five years in the company. And not only that he was successful in the company, he became successful in his career. So we are looking at how can we maximize the lifetime value of the people that work here. Right. I think I understand what you're saying. I wish we had time to go over, just for one example, your COVID response, which is, I was on the website yesterday looking at AppsFlyer's response to COVID and it's mind-blowing. Like I, Maybe you should share a few details of that. But I think what you're arguing is, that a really healthy corporate culture is essential to innovation and a successful working environment for employees. And that the kinds of things that we see you doing externally, whether it's COVID or Ukraine, all of those activities, which might appear to be, oh, this is just PR recruiting, you know, nonsense. You actually see it as, as a natural outgrowth of making sure you have a great internal corporate culture, which you believe is essential to success. I think that's what you're basically arguing. It's effortless. 
So you look at all the things that this company is doing in the CSR, which I'm a huge believer, a huge believer, and we can discuss why this is one of the best investments any company can make for the sense of belonging. We can talk about that separately. I think that companies must invest more in this. Even small companies, they can do small stuff. And believe me, there are plenty of things that can be done. By the way, we're not donating. We're actually making or initiating and taking care of projects that we're really, really proud of. And this is the CSR front. By the way, this is really organic. This is effortless. This is, we're not deciding, hey, we need to look good and all this stuff. And so we ask people what they care about in different offices. So we have in Asia, we have, the, they care about different things. In Israel, we care about different things. In the US, they care about different things. And, and that's really created a platform that allow individuals here in the company to give back to their communities. So instead of you trying to figure out where you can spend your time or help other people that are in need, you have a platform that you can actually go ahead and do it. I can tell you that one of the most emotional evenings or days in the company and for me here is hosting Holocaust survivors in the office. Not only for me, for all the people that are involved. And we're not bringing a catering company that serves food and stuff like that. The employees are doing it. Employees are doing it. The employees are dancing with them. And this is a lot of fun. This is fun and inspirational. You have 100 brave people, the bravest people, and you see them happy and dancing and having fun and proud. You can learn so much. And this is the appreciation and the feeling that you're giving back and the feeling that you're doing something good. It actually gives you more power. It gives you more power to build better products and to have happier customers. And this is the harmony in it. You're doing something good in the business. You can give a little back to the community, not because you have to, because you want to. And that, what I'm saying to people, look, even if you're selfish, you, you want to make sure that you're happy, right? And what's the best way to make you happy? Is to give someone something. Yeah. But, you know, there's, but the purpose of all of this effort is what I think you're saying is, tell me if this is right or not, is you're saying if you're not doing this, then you don't have a great corporate culture. If you don't really have a great corporate culture that stands for anything, then you can't possibly be as innovative and you can't possibly have as happy employees and as successful employees and as engaged employees as you would have if you were like that. That's, I think, what you're saying. In other words, if COVID is happening and your company doesn't care and doesn't do anything, then you don't really have a corporate culture and you might be fine, you might succeed, but you're not going to be as successful as you would have been had you invested in something and given something. Yeah. The thing is that when it's becoming a part of the culture, it's organic. It's mm. attracting people. Look, we have a lot of people just joined the company because everything that we do, and this is also something that they really care about and they want to be part of it. It's really an inspiration. I believe in harmony. I don't believe that you are really have a hard time at work and you're suffering. And home, you're happy. It, it must be harmony. Now, we also have responsibilities for 1,500 people that are working. And now I ask myself, how can we make them more successful, uh, happier, professionally and personally? So yes, that challenging them at work and making them and helping them and assisting them and developing them and helping them learn and evolve in the professional way, also personal way, and also letting them have some time with communities by the way, we do team events. They do and uh, they volunteer in different places. So what's better than to take your team 
and volunteer in, in such amazing places. So people come back after these activities, they're filled with pride and, and really inspiration. Try it. Every single person and every single company need to invest in this. And I'm telling you and I'm promising you, this is the best investment that you can make for your shareholders. Again, this is not donation. This is really initiating projects. One of the projects is really having a virtual tour in Auschwitz, Bocano. This is something that we started in COVID. And this is really an amazing project. So moving back to the core culture, you asked me also why culture is important. So it also reminded me an experiment. I don't know who did it. And I don't remember all the details, but it goes like this. It gave a few uh, teams an assignment to build the structure out of spaghetti, tape, and marshmallow. So it was a, a bunch of those lawyers, MBAs, and kindergarten kids who built the tallest structure. So I have a funny story actually about that is we did that my first year at Goldman and my job, because I was on the team that was like running the program for all the new analysts. My job was to count the spaghetti <laughs> to make sure every single team had the right amount of spaghetti. Uh, so that's a funny first job activity. Anyway, we actually have an audience question from Tanya Kefs. She is the co-founder and CEO of this awesome company called Journey based in Paris. And she has a question she would love to ask you. Yes, thanks, Anne, and really great to meet you, Aaron. Super passionate also about culture, and that was like the goal of the company that I'm working on. And I was wondering, for culture, I think like for CEOs and for founders, like it's super important and super clear for them, but it's really hard for the people underneath, um, like managers and VP and directors, to know what their role in that culture and how can they help push it towards the organization. And I was wondering what was your view on that and if you had certain like rules, like I know like Google, for example, they have one day when you can work on something else or you have budgets or things like that. Like, how did you implement the culture throughout the company in a practical way? First of all, you reminded me that in the very first days of the company existence or years, or let's say up until your, now every number that I'm going to say is wrong. So it's going to be 20, 50, 100 employees, 200 employees. Every single employee counts. And the earlier it goes, the more impactful it is. So who you hire, and even most importantly, who you fire in the first period of the company is critical for the company existence and critical for the company culture. These first employees will dictate how the future company is going to look like. And if one of the employees is not all the managers, and this is even more important, or the senior managers are not in what you believe in. For example, we don't believe in ego, this kind of stuff. And when we identify that, either taking really quick action in terms of feedback and improving it significantly and quickly. In many cases, it's not possible. So you had to let go people quickly at the beginning. And I think that once you do that, everybody's taking action. And I think that no matter what signs and words you're going to put on the walls, people will count the actions that you take and not what you write on the walls or say. And I think that action counts and the optics of what you're doing. So you need to be very careful about it. And the first hires and managers need to be very careful about it. And this is also an evolution. So you're not, you're not going to be able to 
define how the culture of the company is going to look like in five years. And you don't have to do it. This is an evolution. And I can tell you that we don't have the same culture now or two years ago, five years ago. It's not the same culture. This is an evolution. And I think that this is how we need to look at it. Also, what they say, which is right, that the company is the creation of its founder and kind of look like the founder. So you need to look at the company and, and basically they look at you. So you look, <laughs> in a way, you look very naked when you found the company because the company is going to look like you, hopefully. Sometimes it's successful, sometimes not. So I'm not going to say uh, this is always. And God, you asked me about the company culture, why it's important. Because you know, this is the creation. This is the project of our lives. This is the project of my life. And I want to be proud of it forever. And I think any, every founder and every employee, they want to be proud of the creation. They want to be proud of what they do. And they want to be proud of this forever. So I think that this is really important. What works for you in terms of culture? This is really, Tanya, this is up to you. How do you enforce it? You take action. You take action. You always monitor it. You need to ask yourself. Does it feel good? And then you try to formalize why it doesn't feel good, why it does feel good, and then take actions. I've been interviewing every single employee up until we were 500 employees. Just imagine how many interviews I've done. And I think that this is huge benefit and really everybody wins. Uh, it's a big investment, but worthwhile every minute of it, just to make sure that candidates know you, candidates know what you believe in. They have a first-hand understanding of the culture. You have, you're building a relationship and this is what means for them and for me and for the company. Also for me, it was meaningful because I learned a lot from so many people with diverse backgrounds in an amazing setup. The setup is an interview and the interview is the rules are that you ask questions and you get answers, vice versa. So this is an amazing setup to learning or both ends, and I took advantage of it. And also because what we just said, that first employees are really important, I couldn't let go, really. <laughs> I continued to interview them until we were 500 people. So I do recommend to do that as much as possible. By the way, uh, so people ask me, how come you, you managed to do it? And it wasn't a huge effort. And I think that not necessarily need to look at the one-hour interview. My interviews can be 10 minutes. And we can extend that to more 15 minutes, a half an hour, or even an hour, if it makes sense. And if it's interesting, but it can be 15 minutes. Love that. And I think that's actually something that like, we'll proactively probably recommend to all of our founders in our portfolio to actively do. I'm sure they're doing it already, but especially as they scale, they're, they're look, not 500 look, employees. I, you know what? I think that this is a must. You know what? Yeah. Let's, let's make it a must. Because there's so much value in it. They say that CEOs is a is lonely job. Why it's lonely? Because they make themselves lonely. How they make themselves lonely? They kind of disconnect. And it's easy to disconnect. You're super busy. You're always busy. You have investors. You have board. You have this. You have that. You have so well, all these uh, things on the table. And it's really easy to lose the touch and not be connected to the people and really disconnect themselves from doing it. And once you interview with everybody, you have this kind of, and by the way, before they become employed, because after they become employed, you have different relationships. Before they become employees, you can say things that maybe you do, you cannot say in the same way when they are employees. So this is really amazing setup, amazing setup. You, you have to do it as long as you can. I mean, really, as long as you can. So as I think that not interviewing other employees is a, is a mistake that some founders make. Are there any other common mistakes or like oversights that you see founders make when it comes to building up the culture 
at their company. What I had said about being lonely, I think that they need to find their own way. By the way, what I'm saying is it's what worked for us and what worked for me. Not necessarily something that wouldn't work somewhere else. So you need to make your own judgment based on your experience. What Every company is really unique. Other mistakes, I think that, again, what worked for us is being a very humble and very close to the team. It reminds me of one of the last kind of interviews that I made. Last interviews when I still would have been interviewing everybody. The candidate were so excited to meet me that it was very hard for her to be interviewed. She passed the interview, but it was really hard for her because she was really excited. And then I said to myself, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the point of time and maybe a signal for me that it's not there. But still, you need to be able to break the ice so people can feel comfortable to tell you different things. The way we designed our office is forcing this kind of interaction. So you cannot escape from it. So you have this big cafeteria in the middle of the, of the office. This is by design, but everywhere you go, you have to cross there. You have coffee, you meet so many people. We have breakfast, not because the breakfast is good for you and healthy. It's amazing for collaborations. So you have tens and hundreds of people having breakfast from different teams, different departments, sitting together, talking about life, talking about this, talking about the product, talking about the market, they getting to know each other. You know how many things get closed in kind of these casual discussions? We lost that in COVID, working from home and stuff like that. And people came into the office and they said, you know what, just today, I, I finished things just, just sitting next to the coffee machine, more than I can possibly do in, in two weeks of Zoom. Because when you create this kind of casual interactions and not formal meetings, so many things are getting done faster and better and more in a natural way. I'm not saying that we don't have formal meetings. We do, and actually we have probably too many of them, but this is really important. I will just say just to create this kind of casual interactions and getting people to work with each other and have a relationship with each other and trust each other. Face-to-face -face interactions are critical. In the end of the day, we have social animals and we need this, whether we know it or not. Some people need it more, some people need it less. Different positions require different kind of collaboration. But creativity comes when you meet people. You've been super generous with your time and helping us think through issues that are so hard to think about and hard to put into words. This is particularly timely, I think, now because you have a bit of a backlash kind of starting in the Valley against some of this stuff. I'm sure you're aware of that conversation. And the one I'm most aware of is the CEO of Coinbase who kind of said, you know, we're not going to allow discussions of politics in the office. And, and the U.S. You know, polity is, is pretty seriously divided. I know Israel is as well. I know you guys operate in a lot of different countries, including the U.S. What would you say to the argument that, that many CEOs are making? You know what? I don't want this headache. I just want to run an efficient company and people can be political or do charity or do community work on their own time. Because you could imagine how in certain parts of the world, you know, the same gay pride event that you and I would be delighted to host would offend other employees and the CEOs just say, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. What's your response to that? attitude of it's too complicated. Yeah, so I cannot refer to specifics that you mentioned, but I think that there is a distinction between politics and social responsibility. So everything that we do in CSR is about the communities and it's not left, right, center, and all this bullshit, excuse me, because this is putting a map and dividing it into two 
that if I believe in one thing's here, I need to believe in all these things. And by the way, the world is much more complex. So maybe I believe in some things in the left and some things on the right and what makes me. So anyways, this is why this whole, I would say, system is in a way kind of creating this kind of divide. And I think that social media is something that is helping in it. Putting politics aside, I recommend to people, by the way, you also mentioned the pride and we are in the pride month. I think that this is not politics. <laughs> I think that's where people get like, that's where the, this argument comes from. They're like, okay, to you, it's social responsibility. To you, it's not political. To someone else, they may have a different view. And the safest thing for a CEO to do, I mean, I, I don't believe this. I, I just want to understand your response. But the argument is the safest thing for a CEO to do is just to do nothing and just tell everybody this is just a workplace and all we do here is work. And oh, okay. So now I remember, I completely do not agree with that. Okay. And I think that you see, you see that by action. So we do it because we believe in it, not because we don't believe in it. I can tell you whatever, but you just take our actions. And this is what we believe in it. And this is why we're doing it with a full of heart. Let me rephrase it. For a CEO who's worried about it, he's worried about distraction. He's worried about politics. He's worried about... Politics is something else. I think that politics is by design is something that aims to divide. And I don't think that this is a good discussion in any company environment. Right. You need to focus on the communities. You need to focus on the things that that no one can say can tell you that this is politics. Take, for example, what we are talking about, LGBTQ plus Holocaust survivors, orphan houses, mostly in Asia, people of color in the U.S., people of need, children with uh, cancer, children uh, safety, the connection between suicidal and children, and internet safety. I don't think that anyone can argue with the necessity of these things. And I think that this is the right thing to do for any company to take things that the, the people care about. Yeah. And we care about all these things and take action. I think that this is the responsibility for companies to go ahead and do it now. Uh, to the, the discussion about the political uh, parties and stuff like that, I think that this is, it, it can be somewhere else, not in the company. And I think that this is much more healthy for all of us because in the end of the day, there's a lot of propaganda, a lot of stuff like that. So I think that this is, it's a good discussion, not for the company, because in the company, we want to be uh, united about something. And I think that we need to show how religious people, people of color, people from different backgrounds, races, and everything can work together can listen to each other, can create a community, can create a society that trust each other, that believe that they can build great stuff together. Maybe there are different things that they don't uh, maybe fully agree with. And this is great because we encourage this kind of different opinions and different perspective about different things to encourage listening and to create this kind of safety that people can be themselves and they can feel free to create and make mistakes and learn from them. And I think that this is, we're really proud of it. And I think that this is doable. Not I think, I know, because this is what's happening here on a daily basis. So I think that this is also doable in the world and specifically for different countries. 
I think it's great, Warren, and we are at time, but I want to thank you so much again for doing this. I, I found this really clarifying and inspiring. And as I've moved through my career, all of this stuff that when I was you know, 22, I thought was PR nonsense. I realized how important it is. And I think you're making a very powerful case for that. And I think it's hard for anyone to listen to you and think you can't grow big doing this or it's too complicated or it doesn't have a benefit. I think it's clear that it does. And thank you so much for sharing some of your thinking on that. I, I, I know it's something you're very passionate about. And it's really enlightening to hear that passion explained. So thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you, Gil. Thank you, Aina. I just want to quote Chuck Finney, who is the founder of Atlantic Philanthropies and General Atlantic, uh, which is do well by doing good. And I think that you can do very well by doing good. And I think that in the end of the day, you need to measure everything that you do in the, in the long term and your life perspective. And you need to ask yourself if you're proud in the creation. And I think that all of us, we want to say yes to that. And I think that, yeah, really taking the long term, long path. I think that this is the shortest way to succeed. Hey, Gil, uh, we have a few more minutes or we're done. I have a few minutes for you always. All right. Okay, good. So I just want to. Complete the spaghetti and the, and the marshmallow experiment, which is mind blowing. And also something that I think that all the founders can correlate to that. So they found that the children, the kindergarten children actually did better than the group of CEOs and the group of uh, MBAs and lawyers. Why? Because they were egoless. They've been trying different things. They didn't think about what they're going to say about me, what they're going to think about me. Am I wrong? Maybe I should see and, and calculate my moves. There was none. Children don't give a damn about it. They're just experimenting and they're communicating in just very simple words. Let's try this, let's try this. And they're trying with their hands. They're very close to each other. And you really think about it. This is how kind of in the history and the evolution of the humankind, this is how we communicated without words. And this is why face-to-face and working with each other closely in a close physical proximity and, and creating this kind of relationship and looking in the eye and working with each other and trusting each other and have this kind of safety in this group is critical for building great stuff. And I think that this kind of things are much better than any kind of experience. And what I just said is how do you create environment? How do you create a culture that will allow you to bring the experience and expertise into an environment like kids and children that are playing together, having fun together with no ego. And I think that there's a long way for every company and also for us to get to this kind of an ideal solution that people can work together and have all the aggregated knowledge and experience from everybody into decision-making and execution. This is a problem that is theoretical. In theoretical level, you can get to infinite amount of results, but in the technical level, this is really hard. And this is why you need to invest a lot in the culture and the creation of how do you get to that position. And this is, and that position is, it, it's impossible. We can get closer and closer to it. And I think that we as a company, have, we have a long way to go. Cool. Oren, thank you. That's a great place to stop. Really appreciate it. And hope to see you soon in Tel Aviv. Yeah, definitely. Thank Thanks. you so much, Gabe. Hey, thank All you right. very much.